Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. This is episode four. Uh, we're going to talk about the theory of property. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and uh, if you haven't been with us before, welcome. Uh, if you're back, welcome back. Uh, once again, you can find this podcast on YouTube and on Rumble, as well as most of your most popular podcast streaming services. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and a few other uh, streaming sources as well. So today we're going to talk about the theory of property. In episode two, we talked about why freedom and this idea of self-ownership. And we're going to build on that concept a little bit today about how we come to own things. So we, we, we own ourselves, uh, but how do we come to own other things? And we're going to get into that a little bit today. If you haven't listened to episode two, I'd, in, I'd encourage you to go check out episode two, where we talk about why freedom and this concept of self-ownership. And I'll link to that episode in the show notes. Many of you are probably familiar with the, the preamble to the Declaration of and, uh, Independence, uh, drafted by Thomas Jefferson. He says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what many of, uh, what many of you are probably unaware of is that these unalienable rights, specifically identified by Jefferson, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness stem from John Locke and his theory of property. In 1689, John Locke argued in two treatises of government that political society existed for the sake of protecting property, which he defined as a person's life, liberty, and estate. So Jefferson, when drafting the Declaration, essentially replaced property or estate with the pursuit of happiness. But why am I talking about this, and what, what does it have to do with, with property or, or the theory of property today? Well, Thomas Jefferson was influenced by John Locke and his views on government and property, but he was also influenced by the Greeks and their view of happiness as an end in itself. The Greeks called it eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, in Aristotelian ethics, is the condition of human flourishing or of living well. The conventional English translation of the Greek term uh, is happiness. And it's a really kind of an unfortunate uh, translation because Eudaimonia, as Aristotle and most other ancient philosophers understood it, does not consist of what we typically think of as happiness as a state of mind or a feeling of, of pleasure or contentment. Uh, for, for Aristotle, eudaimonia is the highest human good, the only human good that is desirable for its own sake as an end in itself, as a good in itself, rather than for the sake of something else. 
or as a means towards some other end. I think Jefferson realized this, that eudaimonia or human flourishing is the highest human good, and, and he thought that freedom and the pursuit of happiness or this eudaimonia was an unalienable right. And unalienable just means that it's, not, it's something that can't be separated or taken away from the human condition. Property, on the other hand, other than property in oneself or self-ownership, is alienable through sale, contract, or desertion. I think this is, and I'm, I'm not a Jeffersonian scholar, um, but I think this is probably why Jefferson replaced property or estate with the pursuit of happiness because property, except property in oneself, is not unalienable. Nevertheless, this reference to John Locke leads us to the main topic for today, and one of the first philosophical defenses of the private ownership of property. In the 18th century and earlier, the single word property was generally used because it was understood intuitively that only private property provided the incentive to work hard. Adam Smith, uh, in his inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations, didn't really expand on the philo philosophical foundation for private property because hardly anyone argued in the alternative. Private property was thought of as something that was, was sacred and really needed no intellectual defense. And that basically remained the case until the 19th century, um, particularly with the spread of the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. Uh, the phrase private property began to be used in a, in a bad sense. Aristotle had defended private property in passing, but the incentives and disincentives of the different configurations or theories of property had not really been fully developed, at least in theory. Private property restricts government power and decentralizes decision-making. It confers an individual right to the use and disposal of some good and to prevent others from doing so. So in a free society, there may be thousands or millions of such owners rather than a few centralized owners. And these owners can sell their rights to, to specific property to the highest bidder and retain the proceeds. With communal property, on the other hand, the rights to some goods are shared in an undefined fashion by a definite or indefinite number of people and can't be sold except generally by the government. 
And like I said, during the 19th and 20th centuries, when, when the Communist Manifesto became popular, many ac- academics began to have a, a, a dim view of private property. They, they thought that it may have been first acquired by, by force and inherited by their heirs of maybe without merit and didn't believe that this sort of system could be justified. And David Hume, a philosopher, offered an answer to this sort of complaint. He said that the stability of possession was so important. He wrote that dispossession was unwise in cases where the origin of the title had become obscure through time. So where the origin of ownership had become obscure through time. If we can only say that it may originally have been acquired by force, the injustice involved in seizing it is far greater than that involved in tolerating the mere possibility that remote ancestors were thieves. A distant and possible injustice should not be corrected by a present and certain injustice. But I want to get back to this idea of sort of the state of nature and, and, and the original state of land and property. Every material object and piece of land now owned privately was either once unowned or was derived from something once unowned. Property requires initial appropriation. There has to be a first owner. When an object is unowned, anyone may exercise certain rights over it. They may walk on it, they may touch it, and so on. Yet once it becomes someone's property, no one may perform such actions without the permission of the owner. The act of appropriation not only generates new rights, but also cancels rights or potential rights for everyone else. But how can this happen? Some say it cannot and generally advocate for a a communist or communal system of property. John Locke, however, provided a philosophical foundation for individual property rights that remains a key component in the debate to this day. Locke argued that those who labor have a natural right to the fruits of their labor. In extending this reasoning to ownership of land, he argues that each person owns himself, self-ownership, and his labor. Just as one has a right to whatever one owns, one has a right to anything that is inextricably mixed with what one owns, as long as that thing was not previously owned by anyone else. In his two treatises of government, John Locke says, the labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever then he removes out of the state that nature hath provided and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with and joined it to something that is his own, and thereby makes it his property. 
So John Locke is essentially expanding on this idea of self-ownership that we discussed in episode two by saying that we are entitled to the fruits of our labor and that anything we mix our labor with becomes ours. In the state of nature, before land is touched by humans, the first human to mix his labor with the land and make it fruitful becomes the owner of it. And laboring on the land, Locke is basically suggesting that one inextricably combines one labor, one's labor with that land and comes to own it. That land becomes an extension of that person. David Hume, on the other hand, who I mentioned earlier, argues that private ownership because uh, it is necessary because of the beneficial effects of private ownership. Hume argued that private property ownership coupled with the free market does more to advance human well-being than any alternative system such as a common property system under communism. Hume's argument emphasizes the incentives provided by property rights. The vital issue, in his mind, is to get the land and other property into private hands so that it can be used effectively. So, Locke's labor theory of property and the beneficial effects of private ownership identified by Hume lay this sort of philosophical foundation for private property. But the need for private property persists really even in the absence of a philosophical defense of it. Put simply, the the only known alternatives to private property ownership is the communal or state ownership, which does not work and can never work. And we'll get into this in more detail in a future episode um, about the, the, the knowledge problem, the calculation problem of communism. Um, but I want to talk about it just a little bit here. Think about some of the horrific examples of the effects of communal property, where millions of people starve to death. For instance, during Mao's Great, great Leap Forward in China, and the Ukrainian Holodomor. In fact, if you haven't seen uh, Mr. Jones, it's a movie about a journalist uh, who discovers this famine and the impediments he, he faces to writing about the famine that he, that he sees uh, and the, the measures that the, the Soviet Union takes to give the appearance of prosperity to the rest of the world to prop up their uh, communist, their socialist regime. Uh, If you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to check it out. It's called Mr. Jones. Uh, Many people have never heard of the Holodomor, uh, so I'd encourage you to to look it up and check out the movie, and I'm happy to link to it in the show notes. But you see, communal property has a huge defect. If the members of a commune have the right to equal shares in the overall 
product. Those who work hard will subsidize those who do little. Idleness or laziness is encouraged and industry or hard work is discouraged. This phenomenon is generally known as the free rider problem, which you can learn more about, more about in the 1968 article by Garrett Hardin called The Tragedy of the Commons, which I will link to in the show notes. The free rider problem is encountered by example when a group goes to a restaurant and shares the tab equally. The solution to separate checks is the equivalent of converting from a communal property system to a private property system. When this conversion is made, efficiency increases and people are less wasteful and more mindful of their actions. But more importantly, justice is introduced. Heavy and more expensive eaters at the restaurant will pay more, whereas the frugal will pay less. In short, each person is given his due. And this notion of getting your due corresponds to the classical definition of justice found in Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. And that is probably the single most important argument in favor of the private property system. Uh, the pilgrims who came to the Plymouth Colony on the Mayflower uh, in the early 17th century at first tried communal property and were to the point of starvation when they shifted to private ownership. And William Bradford reported this had very good success for it made all hands very industrious. So as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been. As for the common course or communal arrangement, it was thought to be injustice. And that brings us back to the beginning of our discussion about Thomas Jefferson and the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I hope this discussion demonstrates that neither life, liberty, nor the pursuit of happiness are secure without the right to acquire and hold property. Property rights and human rights are inseparable. Whoever controls the means of existence of a people has power over life or death. Alexander Hamilton said, Power over a man's subsistence is power over his will. So there you have it, uh, some of the foundational ideas behind private property. Of course, you could spend an entire semester in college discussing theories of property, but I wanted to provide you a foundational overview of private property to build on the idea of freedom and self-ownership that we discussed in episode two. Without freedom, there is no vir virtue. Without property, there is no, no justice. And without freedom and property, there is no happiness, no human flourishing, no eudaimonia. Next week, we will discuss uh, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, just in, in broad discussion. Uh, 
the first ten amendments, as you probably know, or are commonly known as, as the Bill of Rights. Uh, I look forward to that discussion, and we'll probably get into some of those amendments um, in more detail uh, separately at some point in the future. Anyway, I hope you tune in next week. I hope you learned something in this episode. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like and subscribe. Remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.